Hello, hello. Welcome to the show, guys. As many of you know, my name is Ashley. Today we have a great interview with my friend JD, who I met on TikTok, and we've become great friends. We talk, I want to say, a couple days a week, and it's just so enlightening finding somebody who has the passion that I have, who has a story that's similar but so different than mine, and I really hope you guys enjoy this. So let's dive into the episode with JD. Now, first and most important question, what was your addiction? Um, I identify as an alcoholic, um, but my main drug of choice by far was Roxy 30s. Um, you know, I started drinking at 11 and I, I was a partier, you know what I mean? I, I drank hard, but never irresponsibly. I wasn't getting DUIs. I was drinking and walking home from the bar, drinking and walking home. You know what I mean? I was getting drunk and then going to school the next day, that kind of shit. You know, basic, like, teenage angst, rebellion kind of stuff. I, I, alcohol poisoning at 16, night before Easter. You know, just your basic run-of-the-mill teenage alcoholism. Um, and then, you know, 21, I went really hard. You know what I mean? Like, 21, I was at the bar six nights a week. And not be... I would say I had a problem now looking back. But in the moment, it was, oh, I'm 21. It's, you know, half off of this night. Or it's dollar shot night. Or it's college night. It's wing night. It's, you know, this is back... I turned 21 in 2007. And in 2007, there was still a lot more theme nights in Jersey. I'm not sure about the, all the states in the country. I lived in a few of them. I know in the last, like, 10 years, they got rid of a lot of those kind of, like, promo nights because it was, like, promoting over-drinking, like what happened with me. You know, there was this one bar I used to go to um, on Wednesday nights. It was called White Trash Wednesday. And that should just give you an idea. Um, if you... If you were going to the bathroom, you might as well go outside because it's cleaner than either the bathrooms inside because they're flooded with piss on the ground. Seriously, just overflowing the entire night. The women's room worse than the men's room even. Um, so it was one of those kind of bars, right? Um, and from 8 to 12, it was beat the clock. So 8 to 9 was quarter drinks. 9 to 10, 50 cent. 75 cents, dollar for the last hour. And then full price for the last three a live band would come on around 10, do um, covers the entire night. Basically, you pregame in my apartment, you show up at 9, and then you start. For me, it was whiskey and Coke the entire night, you know what I mean, for 50 cents, grabbing four or five at a time and just fucking pounding them. Um, wait, can I curse? It's probably too late now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm just so used to it on my podcast, cursing all <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm, you know, and then by the time it's 10 o'clock, I always had my rule, then I switched to beer, and then I switched to, you know, dancing, and that was, like, my night, but every single night was, like, every Wednesday was a rough night. Everybody who went to White Trash Wednesday, there was fights, it was crazy, it, it's shut down now, it was called the Pennant, and it was a little hole in the wall, like, small-ass bar with some L-shaped bars, and always packed way over <laughs> the limit for the fire department every single time craziness so 22 rolls around and it's not fun anymore you know and i'm trying to find a new escape because i was escaping right i was you know my day was bad let's drink about it my day was good let's drink about it i whatever it was i was going to drink about it so i couldn't find like it wasn't fun it wasn't working 
found pills on a Friday night in October 2008. I remember that because how could I not? It was the first time I fell in love. And I consider it my first love. I look at pills as a toxic relationship that I was in for nine and a half years. You know, we would break up, get back together. Everyone would tell us it's not good. You shouldn't be with them. You're running the mill, toxic relationships, right? People that aren't addicts, you know, or alcoholics, it's hard for them to understand, like, what addiction's like. And why would you keep doing that drug? Why would you keep going to drinking? It makes you do this and it makes you do that. And it's like, yeah, but it also makes me feel like this. And it also does this. And it's exactly what a toxic relationship is with, you know, a man or a woman. When, you know, they leave you or they're cheating on you or they hurt you or they physically hurt you, they mentally hurt you. They leave you. And they, they, you can't get a hold of them, a.k.a. you can't get a hold of your dealer. You know, it's, it's the same thing. And I've explained to people now in meetings, especially like Al-Anon type of meetings, where parents are normies in the crowd and they don't understand why their kids are still relapsing and I, I remember saying that to a woman once she's like um my son's been on heroin for 15 years he's 34 he's overdosed nine times i don't know why he keeps doing it and it breaks my heart and i gave her that analogy i said you know but i i set it up differently right i was like have you ever been in a relationship with somebody where your parents told you it's not good they're not good for you and she's like of course and you would tell them what you don't understand you don't know what it's like when we're alone you don't know the things that he says to me and how he holds me and blah 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 she's like yeah and i'm like there it is you don't understand what they do for us and how they make us feel yeah they're toxic as hell and really bad for us but at the end of the day they are who listens to us. They are who we fall asleep with. They are the ones that loved us. And it blew her mind because for the first time in 15 years, she was able to resonate with her son and have compassion for him going back to that relationship over and over. You know, and it takes what it takes for us to get sober, right? You know, I've had a ton of relapses. I tried on my own so many times. I was my, in my opinion at the time, I was the best therapist and the best pharmacist that anybody could ask for. I was trying always cocktails and ways to get off perks. I, I honestly never did heroin and it was because I loved pills so much. And honestly, most people will tell you that like, oh, I was in denial and I knew I was an alcoholic a month into AA meet. Not my story. I knew a month into my pill use that I was addicted, right? And I had a conversation with myself that most addicts don't get the opportunity to have where I could sit there and say, I'm, I'm an addict. I need these every single day. And I was going to say it's a hard pill to swallow, but it wasn't because I was sniffing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, it is it is a hard pill to swallow because, you know, and people get emotional when they realize it in the rooms and they're sober because they're feeling it. And they're feeling those kind of feelings. But when you're high and you're feeling that feeling, you're not feeling that feeling, if you know what I mean. So it doesn't hurt you as much. Instead, you justify it and you give yourself rules. Don't do dope. You're going to lose control if you do dope. Right now, you're in complete control. No one knows a thing, JD. You know, that kind of thing. So I went on for nine and a half years. I got arrested a bunch of times, you know, 
Xanax would always get me in trouble. I started mixing Xanax in once I started doctor shopping and because I was doctor shopping in Jersey where I was from. I was born and raised right outside of Philly and I was doctor shopping like crazy. And they would give you whatever you wanted back then. 2011, 2012, 13, you walked up to that doctor. You, you, I got a referral. You know, when you get a referral from a doctor to see another doctor, that's legitimate. To see these doctors, you needed a referral from another patient. You know, just where the patient's like, hey, man, he's cool. Don't worry. He's with me kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. He's not going to rat you out what we're doing here, that kind of thing. So you walk in, you give them cash only. They don't accept credit card. They don't accept any kind of insurance, cash only visits. And then you sit down. They do a little Reiki just to make it legitimate. And they're like, what do you want? And I was like, uh, 120, 30 milligram oxycodone and 120 Xanax bars. All right, here you go. See you in 28 days wild like clockwork and those those waiting rooms those are those are some wild waiting rooms too because there's everybody like you sitting around for their fix you know and then getting the pharmacy getting them filled in the pharmacy that's a whole other thing because they won't tell you if they have a controlled substance over the phone because then they're at risk of getting robbed so you have to go hand in your script for them to say it's not in stock and then go to another place go to another place go to another there were some days days where we're driving for days looking for a pharmacy to film i remember one time my buddy and i had to drive down to delaware about an hour on a saturday night in the hood to get a cvs to fill it at 10 o'clock at night crazy the things we would do uh, um so but again it's that toxic relationship every time but every time i did xanax i always got myself either in a car accidents or i would steal shit and get arrested you know, every time I got arrested, I would end up getting like probation, do community service, all that kind of stuff. Because it was always like theft. It was never tied with drugs. It was always just theft. So they weren't ever drug testing me during these probation visits. They only ever drug test you if you get arrested for drugs. They're not going to waste their time running these drug tests. They have enough to do as it is. You know, so whenever you get just for theft, you just get probation. So anyway, yeah, I would do my restitutions or whatever and get it dropped and move on with my life and then get in trouble again. I would move around a lot. I lived in Massachusetts for a little bit, North Carolina, um, New Jersey. I lived in 30 different addresses in 10 years. Wow. Um, I, you know, because I wasn't the problem. I was in control of my pills. Everybody else was the problem. But then I moved to a new state and then I would have them overnighted to me all the time in the mail <laughs> or I'd find connections there and. You find another drug of choice. When I was in North Carolina for a year, I drank six nights a week and I did coke all the time. Because I could get coke easily. Um, my fiance had just committed suicide. And I was in a very dark place. You know, my fiance and I, we met when we were in fifth grade. And we were childhood best friends. Um, she was diagnosed bipolar schizophrenic when she was 19 after she was sexually assaulted and drugged. Um... Nobody would really talk to her after that happened because they didn't understand how to talk to somebody that was bipolar and schizophrenic. A lot of her friends, you know, they didn't know how to, quote, deal with her. Mm. I say deal with because I lived with her, not dealt with her. Um, so we ended up dating around 25. And then, yeah, she took her life three years later. Um, we were about three weeks shy of our three-year anniversary. And um, we had just gotten engaged at New Year's before. And it was July when that happened. So I went to North Carolina and I left just to escape. 
I wasn't allowed at her funeral or anything because her parents blamed me, you know, like good Catholic, Irish Catholic parents would blame anybody else but themselves. So, yeah, you know, that that is what it is. Eventually, I found myself, you know, I was running a business. I was always working. I was running a plumbing business with my dad and my brother at the time in Lancaster County in PA. I was driving three hours, four hours round trip to Jersey and back four times a week to get pills while maintaining a business with my dad and brother, working 70 hours a week um, on top of all those drives. So eventually, after doing that for a couple of years, I was watching a documentary on Netflix called Legend of 420. Um, I was a big weed smoker. You know, I, I love to smoke weed. It was never like a problem. It was always like, I always consider, I usually do stand-up comedy too, and I still do. Um, and I always had this joke about weed being an innocent bystander. Um, you know, like when you watch cops, well, when cops used to be on, whenever the calls came in for cops, it was always like, my husband's been drinking or he's been using and he started hitting me. It was never, he just smoked a fat blunt and he hit me. That's never the call. The, the arrest would always happen. Oh, they have weed on the premises or no, they have this on the premises, this on the premises. Oh, they have a little weed too. We just always happens to be in the wrong places at the wrong time, but it's never the cause of that problem whenever there's a huge problem. Um, so I'm watching Legend of 420. It's not on there anymore, but it's on YouTube, I think now. There's a segment in there about this um, rehab in Los Angeles called High Sobriety. Um, and it's basically a sober living. It's not a detox or an inpatient. It's a sober living that you go to after inpatient. Um, where you can use cannabis and they set you up with a cannabis doctor and they teach you how to change your relationship with it so that you can use it as a medicine and not as a drug. For the first time in 10 years, I said out loud to myself, I would actually do that. And the next day, it was just a horrible day, right? It was just like waiting in a McDonald's for like eight hours for my dealer kind of day. Nothing was going right for me kind of day. And, uh, I just, I called the number eight o'clock at night on a Saturday and at 5 p.m. on a Saturday, luckily for me, he answered and he talked to me for two hours and I was on a flight to LA in three days and I haven't touched an opiate since, you know, the 25th of April, 2018. That's awesome. That sounds like a really great program too, because a lot of people ask me that, how I feel about Suboxone, methadone, and especially cannabis use. And I'm really on the mild side, and I think people expect me to be on the other side. But I have people I know in my family who have to use it for pain. So as long as that's just such a great program to have where they teach you how to use it in a responsible way, even though obviously you're an addict and they have to kind of teach you how to use it in that way. So I think that's really great. And it worked out, too, like because... For example, um, I would say that, like, I used to smoke, right? I used to smoke bongs, blunts, joints, whatever you hand me, I was going to smoke. I smoked wet so many times. Wet is PCP, angel dust, and you trip balls. (laughs) Um, But I smoked anything you handed me. I don't smoke it anymore. And I think that's an important thing to know um, because of that changing over the relationship, right? So, like, I snipped my pills. I chugged my drinks. I was chasing effects for immediate relief. People that smoke, they feel that effect right away usually or within minutes, right? Because you're inhaling, it's work. It's the whole point is that like, ah, oh, I feel good. I don't want to escape whatever I'm doing anymore. 
I don't if I'm in a bad feeling, I need to be in that bad feeling. It is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay not to be okay. It's okay to have bad days and to go to bed saying, well, try again tomorrow. You know, I didn't know that for the first 31 years of my life. I'm 35 now and, you know, I've had some crazy things. Like even I'm married now and my wife and I are sober together. We run a meeting center together. We do podcasts together. She was diagnosed with MS two months ago. And it's been debilitating for her. She can barely walk anymore. Um, she already needs a cane or a walker at all times. She can barely walk on her own anymore. She's only 38. You know, not even 38. She'll be 38 in a couple weeks. Um, old JD would need to drink or get high over that. New JD knows that's not going to fix anything. It's not going to make her better. And it's going to make her worse because it'll make me not be able to take care of her as well as I can when I'm sober. So, and I don't, I don't use THC to get high. If I'm high, I can't drive her to the hospital in an emergency. You know, I use capsules. I take it with my blood pressure medicine. They literally, it takes sometimes four hours so I can, like, get any kind of effect. Sometimes it's two. That's the point, is I don't know. I know that it's working its way through my system, though. I know that it's doing what it needs to do for my body and my mind. I know that I can I can think clearer with it in me. I know that my I used to get extreme anxiety and depression. I would shut down completely. But when I can open up, I actually feel a lot better. But sometimes it's hard for me to even open my mouth because I feel so like stuck when I don't have any kind of like relief of medicine. You know what I mean? And it's okay to use that. Some people use Prozac. Some people use other kinds of means to get out of their depressive states and get out of their anxieties and all that kind of stuff. And it's only because I know how my days go because I'm 35 years old now. This is my life. This is how it's been since I was eight years old. I've had extreme insomnia since I was eight. And not even like the cute insomnia, like, oh, I can't sleep. I have insomnia. Like, no, like rage insomnia. Like, where, like, I'm slamming my hand into walls and hoping my hand breaks in order so I can have pain and fall asleep kind of rage. You know, so luckily for cannabis, I don't get that kind of rage in the middle of the night anymore. Because for a long time, I needed Xanax and Roxy's to knock me out so that I wouldn't be awake in the middle of the night. It wasn't good, though, because my brother and my dad, who I ran a business with, and I shared a house with as roommates, not as, like, brother and dad. We were just roommates in this house running this business together. And they thought I was dying every night because of my sleep apnea. You don't realize how slow your heart rate gets while you're under that much medicine. So, like, my breathing would get so slow that it, they would hear me in the other room stop breathing while I was sleeping. Like, that is, that's such a, like, scary thing. I, I don't know, because this is how I knew it was from that exactly. I get into rehab, and I said to my roommate, you know, because now you have a, now you're a fucking, like, roommate. You're on single beds, <laughs> you know, sharing a room. And I said, my bad in advance. If I snore, I've had some complaints. And he's like, dude, I've never heard you snore. Didn't snore at all in, in treatment. And I barely wow. snore now. So 
Yeah, it it was definitely from the drugs were a huge impact. I mean, I still snore, but not like, oh my god, is he dying? Kind of snore. Yeah. You yeah. know. So, you know, you I don't need to escape anymore. I still, like I said, I use cannabis and I use it every morning. I drink it with my co- take it with my coffee and my blood pressure medicine and I can actually get through the day. It's not like I'm not able to work. You know, I do podcasts. You're on my you're on my show. It's coming out December 28th to celebrate 1000 days for you. Um, yeah. And so your episode comes out the 28th, like I'm releasing an episode every single day of my podcast from Thanksgiving to New Year's Eve. And every day is a different interview with a different person about their story and how they get through the holidays. Because the holidays are so tough for everybody. You know, I just found um, my first Thanksgiving popped up on my phone sober earlier. Um, Hold on. uh, It popped up in my memories and I was like, oh, shit, this is awesome. Those are big uh, deals because people don't realize, like, that's what I, like, I would go. I remember, right. oh, look at that. That's awesome. I was so happy. That's so <laughs> awesome. I remember I went to my mom's once for Christmas and she lived in Jersey. So you could go on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, you could go to the liquor store. I went and bought, and I don't even, I remember this slightly, I bought an entire box of alcohol. Like, my came back and my brother looked at me and he was like, what? what did you do like why did you buy all that and i'm like oh because when i'm home i can't do this like i can't go walk into a liquor store and do this and on holidays i would just i would get to like my parents house and be like okay i need a glass of wine i need and it was like this crutch and now i like bring seltzer with me and i you know enjoy time and can remember everything that went on i can't remember any of in my addiction any holidays not zero yeah do i remember the the crazy thing is I remember leaving holidays to go score, right? I remember having to be like my parents were the party people. Not not, not they weren't like drinkers ever, you know. But they would throw huge bangers. Like that's how I discovered alcohol because I'm seeing them party and have a good time. So that's the difference. A lot of people they grow up in alcoholic you know families where they're like I don't ever want to do that because I don't want to be like my parents, you know. But I don't like to see how they drink. I'm seeing drinking being done in a the right way, the way that it should be done by normal people that celebrate events and parties, you know. But as a 11 year old, I just thought that's what people do. So, but since my parents weren't everyday drinkers, they would have a huge collection of bottles in the basement from previous parties. Liquor doesn't go bad, you know. So I go down there, and my best friend and I at the time we loved on the outsiders we were obsessed with that movie and that book you know we're in sixth grade we're just reading it and discovering it um fifth grade actually 11 we were fifth grade we read it in sixth grade we found the movie in fifth so we were obsessed with it we wanted to be like greasers and be cool and drink so we got captain morgan from my basement and we made captain and coke and that was my first ever drink and it was like you know delicious at the time um and now in retrospect, when I was 12, a year later is when I started drinking alcoholically. Um, 11, <laughs> 11, I was partying for fun. Um, but 12 is when the first person I knew in my life died. And that's when I said to that same friend who was also friends with the, that kid that passed away, he was hit by a car. Um, hey, we should drink. It'll make us feel better, 
right? And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. So looking back, that's when I escaped for the first time with alcohol. And that was just a pattern that continued all through my teens, all through adolescence, and well into my 20s and into 31. So, you know, you don't see those things until you can get away from it, right? Because it's like, it's like being on the Titanic. Addiction is like being on the Titanic, where you don't notice how grand Dios it really is when you're like right there and it's right in front of you when you're in it you just see what is in front of you and that's it and then when everything goes down you pull back and then you see how fucking big it was and how big of a catastrophe it ended up being yeah there was nice moments right the band playing the food was good this and that it was a beautiful sunrise whatever beautiful sunset i drew a beautiful girl but then at the end of the day you either get off the boat or you're jack you know simple as that and luckily for me i was not jack (laughs) 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 and i was able to be saved for now and so all i can do is put it forward it's interesting too because that's how you cope. Rose, and Rose, that Rose. Your, that's her name. Rose, Jack yeah, and Rose. she was on the um, It's I'm interesting Rose. because that's how you coped because you didn't know any other way. And it's not because of your upbringing, you didn't see anybody act like that, you weren't witness to it. But in your mind, and this goes back to, you know, I'm 34, and this goes back to our parents didn't teach us how to cope in a healthy way. And it's not their fault because it's when they were brought up and how they did what they did. And it's not their fault. But you coped with this tragedy at, you know, 12 years old. You coped with it by going, okay, well, I drank before and I kind of like the way that makes me feel. And that's going to make me feel better. Exactly. You know, and exactly. It's not my parents' fault that I didn't know. We're all products of our generations, you know. And my parents knew what they knew because of what their parents did. There wasn't even Google for parents back then. I was born in 86. You know, my parents didn't have shit. My dad wasn't reading books. My dad was 23 years old and working two jobs to make sure my mom could, like, stay at home with me. Mm -hmm. You know, and then my mom would babysit other people on the court. You know, we lived on on a court. So it wasn't a street. You know, we parked at the end of the court and walked down. So my mom would watch other kids on the court. You know, when I was growing up, just to be able to stay at home with me because they couldn't afford childcare. Mm-hmm. So my dad worked his ass off. You know, I was an only child for three years, so my brother was born, and then my sister, she's nine years younger. We eventually got out of there and got a nice, bigger house in another town, next town over. But like, yeah, that's we were a very close family, and you know, I was lucky that I never needed for anything, but we definitely weren't well off. You know. Um, we went on our vacations. We did a lot of road trips as a family and I got to see my parents love each other and they still do to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and like my, you know, they would be lost without each other. And I know that. And I, I love my parents. They did amazing things for me and they've always supported me and they never enabled me either because they weren't really aware. And when they were aware, they weren't talking to me, you know, they weren't giving me money. I had to go and just swindle money like every most addicts. Um, so, yeah, my parents knew what they knew. They they definitely did the best they could. But I was a rebel and I was going to break any rule that you gave me. 
my brother and sister, they learned from me. You know, my sister is amazing. She had she bought a house by 23, you know, four year college degree, an amazing job, you know, an amazing fiance getting married in April. You know, I've never been I more proud of anybody. You know, my sister is doing amazing. My brother just had a kid, just got married. He has a house. <laughs> my little brother bought a house. He was closing. He got done closing on his house. And then he drove over to mine and then picked up my dog so I can go to rehab. My brother bought his first house the day before I went to rehab. You know, so he was 28 and already buying a house. And here I am, 31, almost 32, being shipped off to rehab for the first time. Luckily, the only time so far. Mm-hmm. And I say so far because, you know, I'm not Nostradamus. I'm not going to try to jinx myself. I'm always going to say so far. So some people say recovered in the rooms and I get that it says recovered in the book. I'm just not comfortable saying recovered. Yeah, I think it's a it's a lifelong. I think it's a lifelong relationship you have with yourself. I don't I say I don't say I'm an alcoholic. I say I'm a recovering alcoholic because I'm recovering and I'll always be recovering. I'll always have to learn new things. And that's a big thing that I like to make sure I say often because. I can be a better person tomorrow than I was today for the rest of my life. And I can make sure I work on that and make sure that I never have a time where I'm like, I feel alone or I get into the feelings that I was at before. I know now the signs I have prevention in place. I have all those different things, which makes it easier. It doesn't mean it makes it easy enough that I'm like, ah, it's never going to happen. Like I'm good. Like I know it's never going to happen, but I know that because I have these things in place. Yeah. So it's, it's, I believe, I, I believe what you just said, 100%. I believe it's, it's just a lifelong relationship with yourself. Just like you said, you were in that toxic relationship. Now you're in this lifelong healthy relationship with yourself. Yeah. So I want you, I wanted to ask you a question because most people know I didn't use AA, but I did the steps, which confuse a lot of people. What is Al-Anon? Al-Anon is for people, even myself, I love Al-Anon. Um, it, but it's for people who love addicts and they are hurt by addicts. So, or alcoholics. There's Naranon, which is like Narcotics Anonymous, Al-Anon kind of thing. Um, same difference, but for narcotics, but really the same thing. But it's basically for parents or loved ones to go to and have support with other people who have loved ones in addiction. The reason I think Al-Anon's amazing, even for addicts, is because... I run a mental health meeting center, you know, um, all day long, I facilitate meetings with my wife, you know, or by myself, you know, AA in the morning, I do an NA one at night, we do trauma ones, we do LGBTQ, we do um, medical marijuana, we do self-love, we do um, parent, uh, whatchamacallit, you know, addicts or um, family of addicts like Al-Anon, pretty much support groups, you know, and we do meditation meetings. There's so many different things we do here. Um, and we're just, we're, we run on donations. You know, my wife and I started this together um, just because we want just a better, more inclusive place. And we used our um, stimulus money yeah. that we got back in May to open this up. We opened in July and, you know, that's when I started my podcast. I built a studio in one of the rooms in here. We're in an old newspaper press. 
This is the, our town's original newspaper from 1900. So in our basement of our building is the original equipment, original press equipment from 1900, because they could awesome. never get it out of here. So it's just stuck in the basement. Oh. So it's really historic building. So yeah, I took one of the offices and I made it a podcast studio for myself. And you know, when I'm not in meetings or taking care of my wife, I'm doing episodes and I'm talking to people like yourself, which you know, and we just have organic conversations just like this, just getting to know each other and um, one addict talking to another, having a little mini meeting, you know, and I put out an episode every Tuesday um, in September to raise awareness for recovery month every single year, starting this past September, I already did it. It was the first time I'm releasing an episode every single day of recovery month to promote recovery. Um, right now is the holidays, overdose rates through the roof, relapse rates through the roof, people checking back into rehab through the roof. So I figure what better way to spread awareness is to just spread more stories out there. So starting Thanksgiving through New Year's, um, you can find my podcast on YouTube. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, Google, Facebook. It's under the name MJ's Progress Not Perfection. Um, I know my name is JD. <laughs> um, MJ is my my wife's name is Mikey, and I'm JD. So MJ's is that's the name of our business too, and I wanted it all to kind of go hand in hand. So our meeting center is MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association, and then my podcast is MJ's Progress Not Perfection podcast. That's um, awesome. But yeah, I chose that was the first like sober tattoo I got. You know, it was Progress Not Perfection that oh, I got. That's awesome. When I got to rehab, I had one tattoo, and when I left rehab, I had 18. Wow. <clears throat> left Sober Living four months later, I had 18. I met this artist in L.A. Um, I can say her name because she's out there, too, in recovery. is Jules Muck, um, and she has her own recovery in Venice, L.A., called Muck Recovery, M-U-C-K. She's amazing. I'm not sure when this is coming out. She's doing a huge, if you're in Venice or L.A., go there for Thanksgiving. She's giving away food and Alcathon meetings all day long in her front yard where they hold meetings. 50 people to a meeting every day show up there. It is huge. It's getting bigger. And I used to hang out there when there was only 10 of us. It would be on a Saturday night. Wasn't even in the AA book yet. And we would hang out and have a meeting just like, and it was awesome. And she's an amazing, amazing graffiti artist. Um, she did that. The bunnies. Oh, that's so cool. Um, right there, and the Bill Mary's oh. my Bill Mary is my higher power, and that's him above me. I love and, him. Yeah, so she's an amazing artist, and um, she travels across country doing murals all over the place. That's what she oh. does full time. But she's been in recovery now um, seven years. She was on my, she was on an episode um, a couple months ago when she was visiting, going through New York. She had did a three piece commission for the Grateful Dead. Because that's how famous she is that the Grateful Dead hires her to do paintings for him. That's awesome. Um, so she had to go to New York City to do one of the commissions. So she stopped by because I'm not far from there. And yeah, we had a great time painting and hanging out and doing AA stuff. And But yeah, she's doing cool things out there. Um, but yeah, I met her. She's an artist. So she she's an amateur tattoo artist. So during these meetings, she would break out her tattoo gun and give out tattoos to newcomers for free. So they wouldn't be perfect. They wouldn't even be stenciled. Yeah. She would do them freehand. And some of them came out amazing. And then some didn't. But I don't care about the ones that didn't because I love the story more than the quality, mm -hmm. right? 
I love mm-hmm. that I got a tattoo in Venice in a front yard over some shady tattoo shops. I don't remember the guy's name. You know, like to me, that's more important than, you know, the quality is the story behind it. Mm-hmm. And it, cause that, that's my life on the outside. It would look like shit, but the story behind it would say yeah, right. <laughs> what I've been through to get to this shit. So, yeah. but yeah, you find that was my first tattoo is progress, not perfection. I got it on a Venice boardwalk before I met her. And then I needed my step three done. And I was having so much trouble doing my step three. I did not want to say let go, let God. Um, Because of that G-O-D. I just wasn't comfortable saying that yet. I was born and raised Catholic. I had such a problem with the Catholic Church because of what happened. came out in the early 2000s when I was in my late teens. I was like, yep, I'm done with you. Um, And that was, I wouldn't do it. And I said to my sponsor, what if I get tonight let it be tattooed on my arm as a commitment to step three it's the same difference but different words mm-hmm. he said you commit to it that hard i'll let you go on to step four so i got it oh <laughs> nice i love that yeah i love it i so, love it i got so it that um, was the first I one she it. did for me and then it was like all right you're doing a lot more <laughs> yeah that's awesome so now Explain when you started really doing everything with social media right before the podcast. Like, did you, you know, do it through Instagram, Facebook, TikTok? How did you kind of start your thing up? Facebook first, Instagram. And then I realized quickly by talking to my dad, he would send me TikTok videos all the time. This is my dad and my brother would too. And my sister, I'm like, everyone watches their videos first there. Even Instagram, I started noticing on Reels, they would have the TikTok emblem. I'm like, son of a bitch. Everyone's posting videos there. They're seeing the videos there first, and then they're getting moved around social medias. Why am I not posting my clips there? So then I created the page, you know, and it was also, I promoted the business at first. Even at first, though, I still didn't, like, know how TikTok worked, right? It was just, like, dropping videos and going. Like, literally taking a video that I made for Instagram or Facebook and then just putting it on TikTok, throwing some hashtags up, and then leaving the app and not interacting with anybody else and then confused why it's not getting any attention. You know, I didn't know how the algorithm worked with TikTok, and now I do. So now there's a little more of a following. Um, that's how we met is on there. Mm-hmm. And I've had a I've had a bunch of people um, today is Tuesday, and um, I have a new episode out in my podcast. Um, and it's this girl, Sarah, um, her name on TikTok is Sarah Quill. <laughs> it's something with numbers I forget too, but it's Sarah Quill. It's something I always remember because Sarah Quill is a very popular drug they give in rehab. So I always <laughs> loved that her name was Sarah Quill. Um, but she's got some videos that surpass millions of views in recovery. And her episode came out today with me where we talk about how she got into addiction in her teens and opiates and relationships and all the patterns of boyfriends and different drugs and how they, you know, weave together. I, I just love how we all have, I, I think it's important to know how we all, we all should respect different recoveries because we all had different kinds of addictions. Yeah, in the broad scheme of things, we were an addict or an alcoholic and now we're in recovery. But we all had different things. Yeah, the like broad spectrum of the stories can kind of line up, but we all had different events so why should they all be the same too in recovery now? We all have different things we need to work on at different times and in different ways. So it's just give time and just give trust that that person's going to do the right thing. 
if recovery is about trusting yourself, it should be about trusting others too. So you should trust me that I'm going to do the right thing, that I'm not going to use cannabis wrong. And if I do that, I'm going to be honest about it because I run an honest program. If I didn't run an honest program, I wouldn't tell anybody I use cannabis exactly. because you wouldn't, you wouldn't even be able to tell that I used it if I didn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My eyes don't get all bloodshot and all that shit. I don't get a, hey, man. Like, that's not yeah. how like, I yeah. talk. You're you not know? high, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... I, I'm just an honest person, and I'd rather put it out there. This way, it drops the stigma a little more, because there's so mm-hmm. many people hiding in the rooms that are afraid to say that because they're afraid to get ostracized. They're afraid that their home group in NA or AA or CA or whatever A is going to tell them, "You're not sober. You can't do that." You tell somebody that. Guess what? You just told them their clock's at zero and they're going to go get high and extremely drunk. Yeah, they're going to make that choice, but they are going to go out on your resentment. They're going to resent your resentment and then go out. Yes, it is ultimately their choice to relapse in that moment. But do you want their relapse to be on your resentment? Keep your resentments on your fourth step and do your own inventory. Do not take mine. Luckily, my program is strong now, but I have drank over it. I did drink over that. I drank at 13 months. I was 13 months clean and sober from pills and drinking. My old home group, they got so against me with my cannabis use, and I wasn't doing it incorrectly. I was just honest about it, but they wouldn't even give me a one-year chip. So on my 13 months, I said, fuck it. I bought a six-pack of Twisted Tea. I poured the first two out to prove I wasn't an alcoholic, that I could drink without drinking those two, and I drank the other four. So, yes, ultimately, I made the choice. And I didn't drink alcoholically, luckily, in that nine months. Uh, Luckily, I only drank when I went to, like, see a comedian or go to a pool party or Christmas or, you know, that kind of shit. And then I I woke up hungover on Leap Day 2020. Um, 229, 2020, and I woke up hungover. Turns out I drank a bottle of Jack the night before, and I was like, well, I'm done, and I quit. Mm-hmm. So I haven't, you know, had a sip since. Um, but still, you know, I drank over somebody else's resentment. Just put me on your fourth step and end it. You know, you put whoever. If you have a problem with somebody and the way they work their recovery, work your program and put that person on your fourth step. Do not call them out on it because you don't know what that resentment is going to do to that person's program. You know, let them work their program and trust that they're trying to do the right thing like somebody else gave you that trust before. So I agree with that so much because so a lot of people know I'm in an IOP six week program so that I can get my license back. It's a step I have to take. So there's um, three counselors. I normally see two of them who run the meetings. And one of them was, is huge into AA, is like one of those, it's the only way, this is the only way, you can't do anything else. Now, mind you, I've been sober for two years and seven months. So I started the program five weeks ago. So he's like, there's no way you're going to relapse, this, 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 and this. And I took that and I've had enough people kind of give me flack about how I've done my program that I don't pay attention to that anymore. But people don't realize that you saying that to somebody in recovery could have such a negative effect on them. Like the way you do your program, 
the way I do my program, the way my husband did his program, he doesn't do a program. He's been sober for almost two years. He doesn't think about alcohol. He doesn't do anything. And he's good with his recovery. He's good with what he did for himself. And I'm good with how I did it. And then, you know, you do it a different way. And I think you just need to support that person and just trust in what they do. I mean, if they're out there, you know, getting drunk, but like, oh, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a drug addict, but I'm recovering. Like, that's kind of a problem. And I, you know, saying something to that person would totally probably help them. But in our situation, it's like, just let us do our program the way we do it. Like he was telling me, oh, there's no way you can do, you can start the step work um, six months in. It's too soon. There's, it's not a race. I 100% don't believe that. Sir. I did my work. Sir. Yeah. Did he read the book? Yeah. Did, yes. did he read the book? They, they literally, they, I can't reach it. They promoted early on back. There's literally a thing called back to basics where you go through the steps in four weeks Every week you go through three steps. One is, you know what I mean? And so I don't know what he's talking about because, okay, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, yes, that one takes a long time. That program should take a long time. It's a workbook. It's designed to take you a while. AA is not designed like that. AA steps are designed to go through them monthly weekly we're doing a back to basics meeting here i have an old timer is going to come here once a week for four weeks in february and he's going to sit down whoever wants to do it three steps a week by the end of the month you'll be done your steps whether it's your first time or your ninth time you're going to get something out of it that's why we're constantly working them so i don't know what he's talking about you should get into the work right away I got into it um, within two weeks. I had a spiritual awakening in an NA meeting in Santa Monica two weeks in, changed my life. Um, and I got into the work. I found a sponsor, started working the steps. I was sponsoring people at six months. Shit, I had a sponsee that had four years sober when I was six months sober. So, yeah, don't listen to him. Yeah. Oh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I just don't I, I don't like the small minded thinking on that because it's just like it could affect that person who's doing recovery in the right way and I talk about my experience a lot and what happened to me when I went to AA and how I had somebody pull me aside and go the way you're doing your program as long as you're staying sober you're doing the right thing and that's all that matters yep so my last question for you is going to be what would you say to somebody who is trying to get sober and they're having a really hard time and they just, they're listening? Again, I'm doing, I kind of stole your idea and I'm doing the same thing. I'm running an episode a day until January 1st. So what would you say to that person who's feeling like that? Um, one, reach out, you know, and if you feel weird about going to meetings still, either because of COVID or because you're just not comfortable going into the rooms yet, um, there's so much support online that is ridiculous that I didn't even know about from just peers talking to other people that not are that are not therapists, but people like us that are just people in recovery that are regular people is so crucial and can be so helpful. Um, now, if you're like drinking and you don't know how to stop um, and you want to learn how to taper, 
I'm all about harm reduction. I do meetings on harm reduction. We're doing a huge event with the United Way on New Year's Eve here on harm reduction. Um, because, like, okay, I had a guy on here in July. His name was Kenneth Anderson. He started a group on Facebook called HAMS, H-A-M-S. Stands for Harm Reduction, Abstinence, Moderation, S Support. It has like 10,000 people in there. Go to that group. It's private. You can post whatever, and your followers won't see what you're posting because it's private. <clears throat> and you'll get support in there from people who learned how to go from drinking 10 beers a day to 5 beers a day to no beers a day. Shit, even that guy, Ken, he has planned intox days. He drinks one day a week. And that one day, he shuts off his social medias, he watches movies and his binge watches his TV shows, and doesn't leave his apartment. He has a system. He's in his 60s, he's been to rehab twice, he's been to meetings plenty of times, but he's also too smart for his own good. You know, I heard that a lot growing up from my grandmom, and while I was in my addiction, I always tell her that. And now I know what she means, especially when I met this guy. He's got master's degrees on master's degrees on master's degrees. He's a learned dude who doesn't want to stop learning, right? He keeps on writing books. He wrote a book on harm reduction, how to change your drinking. Like, it's a huge bestseller on Amazon, how to change your drinking by Ken Anderson. He's right now working on another book that's all about treatment centers over the years. So his problem is that he's too smart for his own good. So he doesn't resonate in meetings. He relates out because he's finding holes the entire time. And whenever you can't relate in, you're relating out. So that's his issue that he has to deal with. So instead, he started this harm reduction thing. He's all about harm reduction. He has planned intox days. He drinks one day a week, and he's been doing that for over a decade. I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. But hey, mm -hmm. if he can do it, more respect to you, man. So if you're out there and you're like, I don't know how to stop, but I want to slow down. This is getting bad, blah, blah, blah. Check that out. Check out TikTok. Like we're on, obviously you found us mm -hmm. somehow. That start looking up recovery hashtags on TikTok. It'll blow your mind when you start hearing your story told by other people constantly. Because that's what happens. Whenever I'm scrolling TikTok, I'm like, that's me. That's me. Male or female. That's me. Holy shit. That's me again. So reach out. Do research. What <laughs> scare yourself with movies? Some of the movies I watch would scare me into addiction, <laughs> like <laughs> Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> you know, yeah. when he lo loses his arm. You know, my my theme song is kind of a cover of Requiem for a Dream because I always think of that theme, that score of the hard violin playing in my head when I was in addiction. So. Yeah, there's so many things you can do, but reach out. If you go to my Facebook page, MJ's Progress Not Perfection, where my podcast is, it literally says very responsive to messages. Because if I'm not on a podcast and if I'm not in a meeting, if I get a message on that page, either my wife or myself or our other board member, one of us will answer you. You know, our other board member, they are and they are pretty much the head of our LGBTQ community that we have here we have a huge lgbtq community here and we'd love it we have youth group here with them too and there's a bunch of 12 13 14 year olds they come to the arts and crafts meetings they come to the lgbtq and they have a community where they can go and see people like themselves that are supporting each other in their 20s and 30s and 40s and it's amazing to see so like we have meetings over bawling <laughs> emotionally and good tears over seeing this kind of stuff 
So it's that kind of support that people are getting that makes it easier to live. It makes life a lot easier when you talk. Be vulnerable. Be okay with not being okay. Sit in the shit. Every time you sit in the shit and you get out of it, it's you build your muscle up. We don't think of our brain as a muscle like our biceps and our legs that we're at, whatever. But it is. The more you can get through dark times, whenever a dark time happens, you can look back and say, you know what? I got through this, that, and the third. Why can't I get through this? It's literally a muscle. Not a figuratively a muscle, I should say. It's figuratively a muscle, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because you can get stronger mentally. And if you can get stronger mentally, then you can handle shit that comes your way in sobriety. You're not learning how to handle real life shit when you're in addiction. And I know that. I lived my addiction one minute at a time. Because that's all I had to do. If I got pills, I was doing them right away. I wasn't concerned with tomorrow. That was JD's problem tomorrow. I literally lived my addiction one minute at a time. Now I have a little bit of a reprieve. <laughs> reprieve. Yeah. And I can live my life one day at a time, not one minute at a time. You give yourself a break. You're not alone. Like We are living proof of that sitting here looking at you. We're not alone. Mm-hmm. And there's millions of people on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you go on social media that are going to be in recovery. And they're going to offer help. Most people like us in recovery, especially with a platform like we do, we want to help you. We want to make sure you are okay. It is. It helps us stay sober to help other people get sober. And then you pay it forward and then you help somebody else. Because one day on a Saturday on April 21st in 2018, a guy answered the phone for me. And I can sit here and confidently say, if he didn't answer that phone, I wouldn't have called back. I would have said, well, I tried. Yep. Exactly. We call back. We answer. Please reach out. I really hope you guys enjoyed that. Again, if you guys want to get in touch with me at all, please just email me at SoberGirlAsh, A-S-H, at gmail.com. If you have any questions about the show, if you would like to be interviewed for the show, And I'm going to put all of JD's social media tags in the episode notes so that you guys can go and follow him. See you tomorrow, guys.